0: If you haven't noticed yet, this entire event has been put on by people who are discombobulated. Well, I heard a rumor that some of you were out last night and made some extra money. Uh, So we're going to give you a chance to donate. I want to give you the main reasons why Christians meet outside the institutional church. This is a preface for what I'm going to share with you this morning. Here they are. One, they got hurt in the institutional church. And that's why they left, and that's why they're trying to gather outside the institutional church. Secondly, they're looking for relationships. They're not finding them in the institutional church, so they leave in pursuit of a church that is relational three this is true for many men particularly who have a desire to minister but the reason why they leave the institutional church is because they're looking for a platform for their ministry so they create a house church they can't be the big fish in the big pond or a small fish in the big pond or they're not a fish in the big pond they become the big fish in a little pond does that make sense platform for ministry. Another one is they're bored with the institutional church. And so that's what gets them out. Another one, believe it or not, this is very popular in our time, is they leave the institutional church and they get involved in something alternative outside of it because they want to do evangelism better. And they feel like this is a better way to do evangelism. Or they're into church multiplication. Now, the other reason is that some people just come to the conviction that the institutional church is not biblical, and so they want to be faithful to the Scripture, and so that's the reason why they leave. And then another reason is because they hold some special theology or some special doctrine, and they want to cluster people around it. They usually get kicked out of whatever church they're involved in, and they start to meet, usually in a home. Now, let me just say this to you, and this is where I'm at and it will be clear to you as I get into this message, but this is the preface. I don't believe that any of those reasons are a proper basis upon which to gather. I don't believe that any of those reasons are the proper basis for an organic church to exist. It is my conviction, it is my belief, it is my passion that the only reason why A Christian should leave the institutional church and start meeting outside of it. The only reason why any church should exist, be it a house church, a simple church, an organic church. And by the way, there are differences between all three of those. Is to be part of God's story. To be part of God's story. And let me say it to you this way there is something in the heart of God that is for him there is something beating within his own heart that he wants for himself God has an ultimate intention God has a passion God has something on his heart that's been beating in his heart from before creation that he wants fulfilled and it is by him It is through Him, and it is to Him. And this really smacks against most of the reasons why Christians meet outside the institutional church. Most of the reasons really can be distilled down to this. I am doing this because of what I can get out of it. And if I'm not getting my needs met, in this church guess what I'm packing my bags and I'm leaving I'm gonna find another church that meets my needs and yet we have a God out here who's burning with a passion and intention the very thing that caused him to create and so many of us a have no idea what it is and B are not in touch with it so what I would like to do beginning this morning You start a message that will bring you into God's story. And I'm going to try to unfold for you His story. I'm going to make one simple point in the beginning. God has invited you and me to be part of His story. He has called you and me to be part of His story. And unfortunately, most Christians today have invited God to be part of their story. So I want to turn the pyramid upside down And point all the arrows away from you and me to him And let's look at what he's after What is the big picture? What's his story? And brothers and sisters, this is the only reason why an organic church should exist And if we don't have this vision and we try to meet outside the institutional church Quite frankly, it's not going to work and if it does it's not going to look like what he intended and that's my personal conviction it's a passion of mine and so this is what i would like to do i would like to unfold for you the story of god this morning will be part one i'm gonna lay a foundation tonight will be part two i'm going to build the superstructure on top of the foundation you don't want to miss tonight but. This morning will help you to understand tonight, okay? So this is what we're going to do. We're going to begin in Genesis 1. So if you have a Bible, turn to Genesis 1. I want to make a point here in the beginning about how God unfolds His story, His intention, throughout the Scriptures if you've ever seen a movie entitled Vantage Point with Dennis Quaid in it raise your hand if you've ever seen Vantage Point okay for those of you haven't seen it Vantage Point is a film that centers on an attempted assassination of the president the American president in a square in another country and the way the movie unravels is it gives the viewer eight different vantage points from eight different people regarding the same event so for example the way it starts out is the clock just strikes 12 midnight and for the next 20 minutes you're watching this assassination attempt unravel through the eyes of the Secret Service Guard through his vantage point then the clock stops it rewinds really fast to 12 noon, starts again, but now you're looking at it, you're looking at the whole episode through the vantage point of the American tourist who has a camera. You see it from his vantage point, and then it does another through a, a plainclothes police officer, and then another. There's eight different vantage points. But when you finish, you see the whole thing come together, and now you understand all the plot points, and you get the big picture. Well, guess what? The scriptures are really about one thing they are telling the story of one magnificent narrative it's God's story it's what he's after and he retells it over and over again through different vantage points and you're going to see this as we get into it. So, let's build a little foundation. Before we get into actually reading, let me just say this, hang with me because I'm gonna throw a lot at you and if you're trying to take notes I have a suggestion. My suggestion would be put your pen down or pencil down and just listen because I'm going to move so fast with this, I'm gonna present so much to you that you'll probably get tired at some point and throw your pencil down and say forget about it. Let's begin before the beginning and the curtain opens in Genesis 1 but before that We get a peek into what was happening in the Godhead between Father, Son, and Spirit before God said, let. Let there be light. This is John 17. Don't turn there, but you can read it sometime. What we have here is God the Father is indwelling God the Son. He's indwelling Him. And God the Son is indwelling God the Father through the Spirit. And there's a mutual indwelling going on. God is finding His abode in the Son, and the Son is finding His abode in the Father. And the Lord counseled together in eternity, and conceived of a purpose, an intention. And the intention and the purpose was that they would, listen, expand the mutual indwelling. And although the Father had the Son to dwell in, and although the Son had the Father to dwell in, the entire Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, together was homeless. Father, Son, and Spirit wanted to expand the indwelling and dwell in someone or something that existed outside of Him. We see this clearly when Jesus speaks in the gospel of John and he says this if anyone loves me he will obey my teaching my father will love him and we we my father and I will come into him and make our home in him that's John 14 23 we will make our home in him God wanted to expand the mutual indwelling God is a builder, and He's building Himself a house. So let's look at Genesis 1, verse 2. This is how the Scripture opens. We know in the beginning God created, and look at verse 2. The earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now the word hovering in Hebrew means brooding. And the language that's being conveyed here is that the Spirit of God is looking for a resting place in this new creation. He's brooding. He's hovering. He's looking for a place to dwell. Very important. This is how the Old Testament opens. And then God creates man, and in verse 26 of chapter 1, He says, let us make man in our image. And I would like you to circle the word image. According to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea. Circle the word them. And over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 28, and God blessed them. I'd like you to circle the word blessed. And said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And I'd like you to circle the words fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea. And I'd like you to uh, circle the word rule. Alright, now look at chapter 2, verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden. And I would like you to circle the word planted, garden, east, the word east. God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there He placed the man whom He had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight. I would like you to circle the words pleasing to the sight. And good for food, the tree of life, circle the words tree of life also in the midst or the center of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil now a river flowed out of Eden circle the word river to water the garden and from there it divided and became four rivers the name of the first is Pishon it flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold circle the word gold the gold of that land is good the bdellium. And the onyx stone are there. Now, circle the word bdellium if that's what your version says. Some versions say pearl. And others say aromatic resin. So circle pearl, bdellium, resin. And the onyx stone, and you'll want to circle the words onyx stone. Verse 15, then the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden to cultivate it and to keep it. And circle the word cultivate and keep. Now, I want to spend some time breaking down this text because it is the key, as far as I'm concerned, to unlocking the whole Bible. What we're looking at in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is the blueprint for the house of God. God is a builder. He's building a house. He created creation to have a home in which to dwell, in which to rest. And here are the building materials. You can think of uh, Genesis 2 as Lowe's or Home Depot. It is the lumber yard where the building materials of God dwell. Let's look at some of this. The word image. Let us make man in our image. God wants to be manifested visibly. Let's look at the word them. This highlights that it is a corporate image That God is interested in human beings bearing. He said, Let them, he wants a collective expression of himself. Be fruitful and multiply. God's image was to grow and fill the earth and pervade. Be fruitful and multiply and encompass the globe. The word rule, this has to do with the exercise of God's own authority. If you notice the scripture carefully, we read it, it said, Rule over the creeping things. Now, what are the creeping things? Name one creeping thing the serpent. Man is to rule over the creeping things, over the serpent, God's enemy. And then we have the word Eden. And Eden means two things delight and abundance. Keep that in mind. A garden is where life grows. Let's look at what's in the garden. All types of beautiful fruit-bearing trees that are pleasing to the eye. Now, we have no idea what the garden looked like, but we know this, it was captivating in its beauty. It was a beautiful place. And in the center of the garden is the tree of life. There's also a river that flows out of the garden and it breaks up into four river heads. Now all throughout Scripture, four is significant, the four corners of the earth. So the point there is that out of this garden flows this river that is to pervade the whole earth, the four corners of the earth. Gold is there, something called bdellium, and some translations have pearl. And I would throw my chips in to that interpretation some have an aromatic resin which came out of a tree it's the same idea it's white very hard so this medallium we can say pearl or pearl like substance and then there's precious stones so we have three things gold pearl precious stones And we have two added a flowing river and a tree of life Genesis 2.15, the Lord says to Adam, Cultivate the garden and keep it. And it's really interesting to see what the words there are in Hebrew. We're going to look at this later. But cultivate is obad, it means to serve. And keep is shamar, and it means to keep charge of or to guard. Now, I just want to paint a picture here real quickly of what all this means in the very beginning gold all throughout scripture always speaks about the incorruptible nature of divine life more specifically the incorruptible nature of god the father i don't have time to develop that for you but nonetheless you can find this all throughout scripture pearl all throughout scripture speaks of the beauty of god the son And precious stones, the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. We're talking about elements that point to divinity. And in Revelation 21 and 22, all of the same materials that are in the garden reappear in a building. A finished, completed building. A dwelling of God and it's made of gold pearl and precious stone and the tree of life is there and so is the flowing river now Saints that's no accident and if I can put it in a sentence the message to human beings at creation was eat from this tree this tree of life and drink from this flowing river and gold pearl and precious stone That which points to divine life and divine nature will be deposited into you and you will be corporately the house of the living God. And when the curtain opens in Revelation 21 and 22, that's what we see coming out of the other realm, out of the heavens to the earth, a building of gold, pearl, and precious stone. And God is dwelling there. Now, let's get more specific. This is all groundwork. God's presence is found in the garden. He walks in the garden in the cool of the day. you remember? He walked with Adam in the cool of the day. Adam had unfettered fellowship with God. Also, the tree of life is there. And we know that this tree of life is not any ordinary tree. There's something supernatural about it. It's very possible that Adam could see God what we have then in the garden listen is the intersection of the heavenly realm and the earthly realm in the garden we have man's space and God's space joining together and being interlinked it's the overlap between the invisible world and the visible world between God and humans between divinity and humanity the garden of Eden was the playground of men and angels It's where the two realms connected. And God's intention from the beginning was to spread the garden, for the garden to grow and fill the entire cosmos, the entire creation, in so much that heaven and earth would be joined together, that there would be the visible and invisible together joined into one. And the ancient Hebrews and the rabbis referred to the garden as the first temple. And this is significant. Isaiah calls it the garden of the Lord. Now we know what happened. Tragedy struck in the garden. The serpent was successful in tempting the man and his wife to rebel against God. And what happened was they were banished out of the garden. And remember what happened. Cherubim, which is plural for cherub, guarded the gateway to the Garden of Eden and human beings were thrust out the Hebrew tradition says there were two cherubs standing in front of the gateway and from that point on there begins to develop listen now a land versus wilderness theme in the scripture as soon as human beings are out of the garden the earth becomes wilderness And as you trace through the Old Testament carefully, you find land versus wilderness, land versus wilderness. Isaiah 51 verse 3 says, For the Lord shall comfort Zion, He will comfort all her waste places. He will make her wilderness like Eden, and her desert like the garden of the Lord. And here the prophet is prophesying that Since the banishment, the earth has become a wilderness, but God's going to get the garden back. He's going to bring human beings back into the garden. Praise the Lord. That's good news. Well, what happens is really interesting. After the fall, God's enemy begins to compel human beings to build counterfeit dwelling places that are in competition with God getting His own house. And he causes human beings to begin building counterfeit cities. Now, I don't have time to give you all the counterfeit cities, but some of them are Enoch, not the person, but the city. Cain left the presence of God and he built a city. It was called Enoch. And this is where human civilization began. Another city was Babel. There was a tower built there. We'll look at it later. Another city was Egypt. Another city was Babylon. Another was Sodom. These were all competing against the house of God. And what the enemy was trying to do was he was trying to cause man, human beings, men and women, to stop pursuing the building that God has always had on his heart. He didn't want God to have a home. And then we come to Noah. And we know that Wickedness had increased in the earth to the point that God destroyed the first creation. And the new creation, which we find in Genesis 1 and 2, quickly became the old creation. And it was covered under water. And there was a building that Noah and his family lived in, the ark, for a time. And as you recall, after the waters had drowned and covered the old creation, the old fallen creation, Noah sent out a dove out the window. And it came back. And Noah knew that the old creation was still under water. The new creation had not yet appeared. And then the dove came back with a fig leaf. And he sent him out again. And the dove never came back. Why? Because the dove found a resting place. And where was that resting place? It was when the new creation had emerged. The dove hovering over the waters, looking for a place to dwell. It's a repeat. And do not think that new creation and old creation are not accidents. God was speaking. Now Noah builds two things. The ark rests on a mountain, Mount Ararat, and on Ararat he builds two things. One, he builds an altar. He builds an altar. And secondly, he builds a tent. Noah is a man of the altar and the tent. And here's the principle of the altar in the tent. The altar says, I am sacrificing my life for you, O God, and your interests. I'm laying my life down. The altar is the place of death, the place of sacrifice, the place of surrender. I'm laying my life down so that you can get what you want. That's the altar. But he's also a man of the tent. He lived in tents. And the tent says, I am not going to attach myself to this present world. I am not going to sink my roots deep down anywhere in this earth. I am free to move anywhere you want me to move to. That's the altar and the tent. And Noah is the first man of the altar and the tent. And here's what God does. He repeats The commission he gave to Adam to Noah. Remember he said, bear my image, rule the earth, I will bless you, be fruitful and multiply. In chapter 9 of Genesis, he repeats that to Noah. He says, I will bless you, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth. Then we come to a man named Abraham, and let me just say, Noah failed in his attempt to stand for God's house. Some event happened and he dropped the baton and God raised up a man named Abram who he renamed Abraham. And he appeared to him and he said, Leave the land of your forefathers, Ur of the Chaldees, which by the way, Ur was another counterfeit city that was in competition to the house of God. And he repeats what he said to Adam, I will bless you, be fruitful and multiply, you will fill the earth. And Abraham is also a man of the altar in the tent. In fact, when he got that first vision of God and God gave that commission to him, the first thing he did was he built an altar. And by the way, there's a principle here, and that is, all the preaching that you've heard all your life that says, you need to do this and you need to do that and you got to do this for God, and you better please God, all of that... Brothers and sisters, doesn't work until you have been arrested with a vision of God Himself. And when you see Him, and when your eyes are open to behold His glory, and He Himself speaks to you, then guess what? Out of your own inward parts, out of your own bosom, out of the depths of you, you will want to build an altar. It comes out of the vision. It's something that comes out of life, out of seeing, rather than being told, do this, do that. This is what you're supposed to do. You better do it. And so he saw the living God. He had a vision, and he built an altar. He was a man of the altar and the tent. And at some point, he saw, in some faint way, the house of God. For Hebrews 11 says, Abraham looked for a city whose foundations... And builder and maker is God Himself. And here is the beautiful thing. Abraham was promised by God that he would be given a land. A land that flows with milk and honey. A land of abundance. A land that's fertile. A land that will produce from the ground. The land was Canaan. Just know this, it was a fertile, fruitful, abundant land. And I want to remind you that Eden means abundance. And the ancient Hebrews and the rabbis in unison were agreed in their writings that Canaan was the new Eden. Abraham has a son named Isaac. He too is a man of the altar and the tent. Isaac has a son named Jacob. And Jacob is at a point in his life where he's a homeless, wandering man. He's being hunted, really. This is Genesis 28. And he's homeless, he's wandering, and he stops somewhere on his journey, and he's tired. And he finds a stone and uses it for a pillow. And I have never understood how on earth could somebody find a stone for a pillow. It must have been a soft stone of some sort. But uh, anyway, he puts his head on the stone. He falls asleep. Now listen to this. This is very significant. He has a dream. This is Jacob. And in the dream, he sees not a ladder, but a stairway. It was a stairway. Led Zeppelin fans, this is the real stairway to heaven. Alright? He saw a stairway that connected earth with heaven. The earthly realm to the heavenly realm. And on the stairway he saw angelic beings moving up and down the stairway. And at the top of the stairway he had a vision of Of God himself and God spoke and what does he do he repeats the commission he gave to Adam I will bless you be fruitful and multiply fill the earth and Jacob wakes up and he is mesmerized and what comes out of his lips is incredible he says this place where I am standing This place where I had this dream is none other than the house of the living God. God lives here. And He called it Bethel. Now what was that? It was the intersection between the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. It was the overlap between heaven and earth. You had commerce between the invisible realm and the visible realm through this stairway that connected heaven and earth. And he said, this is where God lives, but it's on the earth. Yet it's connected to heaven. Are you seeing this? And what he does is he takes the stone that he slept on, that he laid his head on, He laid his head on this stone. He takes it and he gets oil out of his cruise. He pours oil on the stone as a memorial to Bethel, the house of God. Now look at the imagery. Man creates bricks, God makes stones. This is something that God has made a stone. But it's a dead stone, it's not living, but he takes the oil. And He pours it on the stone. Now, those of you who are Bible scholars, what does the oil represent all throughout Scripture? The spirit of life. Oil, life, the spirit of life poured on a dead stone turns it into a living stone. Don't forget that. And this is the house of God. That was the first building block to God's house. Well, it gets even better. Jacob has 12 sons. And God changes his name to Israel. And these 12 sons are the children of Israel. Or they are Israel. Significant that there's 12. They become a nation. And unfortunately, this nation becomes captive to a counterfeit city, Egypt. And I won't talk about Egypt because we don't have time, but it is definitely a counterfeit city waging war against the house of God. And through Moses, God's people are delivered from this counterfeit city and they are brought through the wilderness on their way to the new Eden, which is Canaan. And it is this new Eden, this land of Caden, and God says, my name will be there, my presence will be there, and later we find out, I'm going to build my house there. And when they get into the wilderness, after they leave Egypt, the commission that was given to Adam is now given to Israel. The Lord says, You, Israel, shall be unto me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. What's a kingdom of priests? It's a people, if they're part of a kingdom, they're kings. They rule. And Adam was to rule the earth. And if they're priests, they have fellowship with God and they bear the image of God. Adam had fellowship with God and he bore the image of God. See, Adam was a priest and a king in the garden. He ruled, he fellowship with God, and he expressed his image. And when they come out of Egypt, they sing a song. Moses and Israel sing the song. Listen to what it says. They sing to the Lord. They say, you, Lord, will bring us in the land, and listen to the words, and plant us, plant us. You will plant us. And the Lord planted a garden in Eden. And on the mountain, on the mountain of your inheritance. If I didn't tell you this, Eden was planted on a mountain. It tells us this in Isaiah. And also the rivers poured down. The four river heads, they came down. Eden was on a mountain, brothers and sisters so in Exodus 15 the song is you will bring us in and plant us on the mountain of your inheritance the place O Lord you made for your dwelling your hands have established this the Lord will reign forever and ever so notice the imagery plant them and your dwelling now if you haven't noticed Israel was the new Adam If Canaan is the new Eden, Israel was the new Adam. And in fact, all throughout rabbinic literature, they called Israel the new Adam. That's who they understood Israel to be. They came into existence to fulfill what Adam had failed to do. Israel was to possess the gates of her enemies this corresponds to Adam ruling the earth and they were to be a light to all nations this corresponds to Adam bearing God's image well long story short Israel forfeits the priesthood the priesthood is taken from the whole nation it goes to one tribe Levi God takes Moses up to Sinai and he rips the heavens open and for the first time God gives a greater image of his house than what Jacob saw what Abraham saw it is known as the tabernacle of Moses and you know what the tabernacle is if you've ever seen pictures of it if you ever studied it the tabernacle of Moses is an enlarged altar and a tent it's a big huge altar made of brass it's the first thing you come to in the outer court and you walk in And when you get to the house, and it was called the house of God, you get into a big tent. So what's happening? The house of God is growing. The building materials are in the garden. The fall happens. God now is going to restore Eden. It's going to be Canaan. He's going to give forth the new Adam, which is Israel. And the altar in the tent, the predecessor for the house of God, is getting bigger. Now we can spend the next three months on all the furniture in the tabernacle and look at it and we will not have exhausted it. But I'm just going to give you a few glimpses, okay? Because I think this is very important for you to see. The entrance of the tabernacle is on the east. The entrance to the Garden of Eden was on the east. The tabernacle is made of gold and silver. Now silver, after the fall, replaces pearl and if you study scripture very carefully you'll find that silver is always associated with redemption always you find this in the New Testament you find it in the Old Testament silver and redemption well you don't need redemption when there's no fall and there's no fall in Genesis 2 so it's pearl but now silver replaces it so you have gold and silver and then the high priest is associated with the tabernacle and he has precious stones on his garment. so when you look at the big picture of the tabernacle you have gold silver and precious stones pomegranates are attached to the bottom of the high priest's robe this harkens back to the garden of Eden inside the tabernacle is the golden lampstand And if you've ever seen pictures of the golden lampstand it looks like a tree in fact the golden lampstand has almond blossoms and flower bulbs on it and the ancient Hebrews said that the golden lampstand was a symbol of the tree of life in the garden and then there was a brass laver and this had water in it and this harkened back to the river that flowed in the garden, and when the tabernacle was reared up, fire appeared on it from heaven, symbolizing the glory of God, now that's going to be real important tonight, that's going to be real important tonight, so keep that in mind, they rear up the tabernacle, here it is, presented before God, men and angels, and fire falls from heaven, the glory of God from heaven. Well, Israel is disobedient to God and they wander in the wilderness for how many years? Forty. And under Joshua, after the 40 years is up, they now come into the land of Canaan, the land that God promised them, the land where God's temple will be built. 400 years passes. And God gets a hold of a man named David. And we know he's a very flawed man. We know he made some big mistakes, but despite all of his flaws, God calls him a man after his own heart. And why is David a man after God's own heart? It's very simple. Listen to his words I will not go home. I will not let myself rest. I will not let my eyes sleep, nor close my eyelids to slumber until I find a place to build a house for the Lord. A sanctuary for the mighty one of Israel. That's Psalm 132. David saw that God wanted a house to dwell in. And above everything else, he had a passion for that house. And he set himself to build that house. And at one point he says, Here I am living in a palace of cedar. David was a king while the ark of God remains in a tent. Psalm 23, we touch his heart cry, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, David is interesting because he's not only a king, but believe it or not, he's also a priest. Not officially, but he did things that only a priest could do. He ate from the table of shoe Only priests can do that. He wore the linen ephod. Only priests can do that. And David prepares the materials for God's house. He wants God to have a house. I don't have time to get into David's little canvas tent in which he put the Ark of the Covenant where God dwelt. It's actually my favorite story in all the Old Testament. You can read about it in the book From Eternity to Here. It's just mind-blowing what happened there for 40 years. But we'll pass on that. And uh, David wants to build a house for God. But he can't because he's a man of war. And God will only build his house in a time of peace and a time of rest. So the baton is passed on to Solomon. And Solomon is now king. And Solomon is living in a time of rest. Now remember when God planted the garden, Adam rested. So here's Solomon in a time of rest. Scripture makes a big deal about this. It was a time of peace and rest. And now he will take the materials from David and he will build what's known as the temple. The temple. Now, brothers and sisters, the temple of Solomon was large, it was glorious, it was incredible. And it was called the house of the living God. And if I could just freeze the frame here and back up a little bit, I want you to see the development of God's house. It's getting bigger, it's growing. It starts out as an altar and a tent, and then it moves to the tabernacle, and now it gets even bigger. It's this glorious temple, and it represents the whole earth which indicates that God wants to live, He wants to dwell in the entire creation. Here are a few features of the temple. It's made of gold, silver, and precious stone. In fact, the onyx stone are mentioned as being part of the temple. And the onyx stone were the stones found in the garden. Embroidered in the curtains are the cherubim. And where are the curtains? One of the curtains is right before, closes off, The Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant is, that's where God dwells in this temple. And if you remember, there were two cherub at the gate in the garden. But that's not all. On top of the Ark of the Covenant, made of solid gold, are two cherub facing each other. They're guarding the presence of God. Now, the ancient Hebrews said that the temple, the three parts of the temple, and there are three parts... ...correspond to the three parts of the Garden of Eden. In the garden, in the center of it, you had the Tree of Life. And God walked in the garden. Right in the center. That corresponded, the Hebrews said, to the Holy of Holies... ...where God's presence dwelt on the Ark. Then, everything outside the center of the Garden... ...but still part of the Garden of Eden... ...corresponded to the Holy Place where the other elements were in the temple and then they said the whole land of Eden which was larger than the garden God planted a garden in Eden Eden was a land that represented the outer court and the temple of Israel was built on a mountain just like the garden of Eden was located on a mountain in Ezekiel 28 it's called the holy mountain of God the temple faced east the garden faced east the entrance of the garden was on the east. The entrance of the temple was on the east. Remember we said that the garden was associated with beauty? Well, so was the temple. It was very pleasing to the eye. Psalm 27.4, That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and seek Him in His temple. In Second Chronicles 3.6, the temple was overlaid with gold, and precious stones for beauty. In Genesis 3.8, we learn that God's presence walked in the garden in the cool of the day. And the Hebrew word for walked is holak. God walked, holak, in the garden. The same Hebrew word is used for God's presence walking in the midst of the temple and the tabernacle. You can find that in Deuteronomy 23 and 2 Samuel 7. He walks in the temple. The temple always had a priest and a king attached to it. Adam was a priest and a king in the garden. And let me show you something that I find fascinating. In Genesis 2 the Hebrew word for cultivate is abod, which I mentioned earlier, and the Hebrew word for keep is shamar. The exact same words are used to refer to the duties of the priests in the temple. Numbers 3. The priests are to perform the duties for God and for the whole community at the tabernacle by doing the work of the tabernacle. They are to take care of, shamar, all its furnishings. So what's happening here is the temple and the priestly system is a repeat in a replay of Adam and the Garden of Eden. And what's happening is, it's getting bigger. Remember, Adam was created with the glory of God. Psalm 8 says he was crowned, clothed with glory and honor. And Romans 3 says, when man fell, when humans fell, they lost the glory of God. Well, the high priest of the temple wore garments of beauty and glory. And those garments were understood by the Hebrews to replicate the glory that Adam had on his body before he fell. The high priest wore a crown of gold on his head. And this signified the removal of the curse from Adam's brow. The priests wore garments of linen and not wool. Do you know why they wore linen and not wool? Because you sweat in wool. And they could not sweat when they worked. And this harkens back to Genesis 3.19. By the sweat of your brow... You will eat your food until you return to the ground." So indicating the reversal of the fall, the high priest wore a crown of gold above his brow. All throughout the temple of Solomon, you had wood carved open flowers and palm trees. The temple had a large molten sea in the front of it. It was a basin that held 16,000 gallons of water. Echoes of the river flowed out of the garden. And finally, the river Gihon, One of the four river heads mentioned in Genesis 2 flowed near the temple. And one scholar wrote an entire book saying that the location of the Temple of Solomon was not the Dome of the Rock. It was right by the Gihon River. And if that's true, it would have been right in the Garden of Eden. Now, I'm going to read to you one scripture and then I'm going to wrap up the end of this story because this has a point to it all. And tonight, you're going to see where it's all headed. And it has everything to do with why we're in this conference. It has everything to do with what God is wanting for His church. Isaiah 66.1 Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Now listen, folks. Isaiah said that when the temple of Solomon was standing. And God is saying, where's my house? I want a house. In other words... There was something else that God was after, even though this physical house, which was called the house of God, the temple, was standing. And here's where we get into the tragedy of all tragedies. The fall replays itself. Israel rebels against God. This is 400 years after the temple of Solomon was built. And like Adam was thrust out of the garden of Eden, Israel rebels against God and the whole nation of Israel is thrust out of the land of Canaan. We have a replay of Genesis 3. And Israel now is taken bondage to a counterfeit city, Babylon. Now let me tell you a little bit about Babylon. It means confusion. It means mixture and it finds its roots in the city of Babel when the children of men came together and said let us build a structure let's build a tower that reaches to the heavens and in the process we will make a name for ourselves now just step back and look at that they built The Tower of Babel, not with stone, but with brick. The scripture is very clear on that. Man makes bricks. Bricks are the product of the energy of fallen human beings. The ingenuity of fallen human beings. The stench of religious flesh is found in the brick. They build this tower, they're trying to reach the heavens, and in the process, they're making a name for themselves. Now, brothers and sisters, if that doesn't describe organized religion, then I don't know what does. And God came and confounded their language, and they couldn't understand one another. That's the roots of Babylon. Here God's people are taken against their will to Babylon and the Babylonians go into Jerusalem and they level the city and they destroy the temple. But they take the gold and the silver and the precious stones and they haul them back to Babylon and they put them in the temple of idols. So you have the vessels of God in the temple of idols. Mixture. God's people will spend 70 years in Babylon. That's about two generations. And while they're there, they enjoy freedom. They can start businesses, and they do. They can start schools, and they do. And you know what? They even have religious freedom. They can worship God in Babylon, and they do. But, there's a big but here. God said... My name, my presence, my dwelling will be in Canaan in a city called Jerusalem in the temple that I have given you the pattern of and that's where I will dwell. Well, guess what? They couldn't build the temple in Babylon. They were in a foreign land. So they thought, well, you know what? We can't worship God in the temple so we will create a substitute for the temple while we're here in Babylon. Enter now the synagogue. Now, brothers and sisters, listen real carefully. They were God's people. He did not let go of them. And He blessed them. He blessed their businesses. They did well in Babylon. And not only that, but they worshipped Him. And I have no reason to believe that he did not accept their worship. He loved his people in Babylon. He blessed his people in Babylon. But listen, God will not build his house, his house, in Babylon. He won't do it. And here is, to me, the saddest of all. This part of the story. I got thrust out of Canaan just like Adam got thrust out of the garden and the kings switched hands and a new king emerged and he said let's let the Israelites go back to their land let them go home and they can rebuild the temple and worship their God and brothers and sisters listen to me well this is historical fact I'm not making this up only 2% of God's people went back to Canaan, went back to Jerusalem. A very tiny remnant went back. The rest of God's people were content to stay in Babylon. Why? Because they sunk their roots deep down in that strange foreign land. They had businesses. Their kids had friends there. They built houses and they loved those houses. And guess what? God didn't leave them. He still was blessing them. He still loved them. And they could worship God in the synagogue. So why pull up your roots and go back and do the hard work of rebuilding God's house? Well, the only reason why anybody would want to do that is because they themselves were a person of the altar and the tent. And God's interest, God's pleasure, God's intention, God's purpose was more important than their convenience. And only 2% went. And you know what? it gets worse they go back and they start rebuilding and they are being opposed and as they're building they're getting challenged opposition is so great that they lose heart they lose the vision and they quit and the rebuilding of the temple of God gets put on pause for 15 years and the Lord raises up two prophets Haggai and Zechariah. And Haggai, with fire in his bosom, reminds God's people and says, You're building your own houses. You're making your own vineyards. While God's house lies in ruins. Consider your ways. Go to the mountains and get timber and rebuild my house, says the Lord. And then Zechariah says this to them. I know you're being opposed. I know you're such a little tiny remnant. You look around and you say, this doesn't look like much. All my brothers and sisters, my my aunts and uncles, they're all in Babylon. They're doing well. And I'm out here catching it from every angle. And Zechariah says, despise not the day of small things. What's more important? What the living God wants for Himself? Or what you're going through down here? And those two prophets inspire and motivate God's people to put their hand to the plow and they begin rebuilding. And they finish the rebuilt temple. Now, Haggai said something else, and this is very important. He said, The glory of the latter house will be greater than the glory of the former house. That being translated means, this rebuilt temple will be greater in glory than Solomon's temple. That's how they heard that. And when the old man who remembered what Solomon's temple looked like, came and looked at the rebuilt temple, the scripture says they wept bitterly, because it didn't look anything like the glory that Solomon's temple had. It was much smaller, it was much plainer, and they wept. So was Haggai wrong? Did Haggai lie? Ezekiel, who was part of the captivity, also had a vision. And he saw the temple of God in a vision, and it was so much larger than Solomon's temple. In fact, I believe it was four times larger. It was about the size of the city of Jerusalem at the time and it was the future temple and so Ezekiel saw this huge temple and then when the temple was rebuilt it didn't look anything like what Ezekiel saw so we have to step back and ask the question either Haggai and Ezekiel missed it or they were speaking of a different temple they were speaking of a different dwelling place now I'm going to hit pause here. We're going to finish this tonight. And we're going to begin when Jesus Christ enters the scene. And for me, all of this has just been background. All of this has just been foundation. All of this has been a bunch of loose threads. And tonight we're going to tie them all together. And brothers and sisters, if what you see tonight does not shake you to your foundations and profoundly do something in your own heart that I can't help you because I don't know anything in Scripture that is more glorious, more grand, more sublime than this it has everything to do with why we meet together as the church of the living God because it has to do with that which God has wanted from before creation. He's wanted a home in which to dwell. Yes. For Him. Yes. For His pleasure. It benefits us, yes. But this is for Him. All of this is going to come together. But I just want you to see two things. One, He's retelling the story over and over again. You see that? And number two, He's looking for people who will be men and women of the altar and the tent that's where it begins